Hello, everyone. Buddy C. Welcome to the Tao of Understanding Recovery podcast. Welcome, everyone. We have Kate today. Glad to have you, Kate. Haven't seen you lately, sweetie. Good to have you here. Good. She just edited a book, too. She's a book editor and doing all kinds of things. I would like to say thank you to her. She did edit the, the book I just published, Powerless But Not Helpless, the recovery interpretation of the Tao Te Ching. And thank you to all you guys in the, in the podcast and in our meeting. Y'all are the reason that, uh, that this book was published, actually. Y'all helped me so much to start uh, studying the Tao Te Ching. Thank you. Thank you. We have other people other than Kate, don't we? We have Marla and Chris and Craig and Dennis. So just excited today, guys. I'm grateful. Uh, if you want more information on the book, you can go to buddyc.org, read some sample verses. Today, we're gonna, going to talk about the 12th verse of the Tao Te Ching. Since they should be here shortly, I hope, and we'll talk with him about it. We'll go ahead and read a couple of versions of the 12th verse while we're waiting on him. What other announcements do we have? Oh, we've got the, we have the nightly 9 p.m. Eastern online AA meeting. Um, ZoomAAMeetings.com will take you there. We have folks here that are regulars. What a good discussion last week. Did anyone else? I know. Chris and I talked about it earlier. Just a great discussion last week. Starlight yeah. and non-being. And non-being. Yep. That was it. I'm a little more, I'm much more comfortable with the idea that the higher power is love. Yes. Yes. Seems to fit, doesn't it? It Just does. Fits. Like yeah. love. Yes, Chris. Love is. Is such a simplified version of a higher power for me too. Um, and so, so many things just point to love. You know, the fact that love's an action, it's not a gray-haired guy in the sky. Exactly, yeah. Sometimes I find though, my HP is in nature a lot. So I've been told, you know, your, your higher power doesn't always have to be one thing. It can be different things. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I really like when I, you know, I live in the middle of a city. So when I get into nature, it's really kind of blissful. And I I kind of see, I feel really tiny. So Mm. I feel like I'm seeing God. I always find it helpful to find a higher power that's actually alive. As in a person. Because Mm. if I have, if I've, if I have things going on, like, um, if if look at finances, my wife does. My, my wife deals with all the finances. Well, she doesn't deal with all the finances. She's more qualified than I am, and I've very quickly recognised this. So if I have financial issues, then I kind of look at her as my higher power for that, and I'm very quick to hand things over to her. And I know I I, I have that instant knowledge that it's all in capable hands. So I, I think I kind of got hung up on the higher power having to be that deity rather than somebody that I can actually go to, look at spirituality or if I'm having issues in, in, in recovery, my higher power is straight away my sponsor. 
that's that's the person that I take everything to, and that that's that's the person that I hand everything over to as well. And then it kind of recycles and hands it back to me and says, "Well, there you go. That's that, that's that's what you need to do with it." Um, so that's one of the lessons that I learned that you know it doesn't always have to be the, the mystical deity up in up in the sky. Somebody that something that handles what you can't deal with. Absolutely, that that's that's the whole idea of it, is it not? You know, I've, I've come to believe I'm, I'm powerless over whatever it is that's going on in my life, and when when we have these issues, we work the steps on on everything that we're doing. Um, so I, I think it was beneficial for myself to have somebody that actually knows what they're doing in that particular in that particular area. Thank you, Craig. Good to have you, Sensei. Thank you for coming today, sir. Good afternoon. Thank you. Good afternoon. But we were just rambling a little, discussing, uh, fixing to discuss the 12th verse with you. So happy we haven't read it yet. We were just uh, getting a couple of announcements out of the way. Um, Is it chapter 11 or verse 11? Uh, I thought it was verse 12 today. Was it verse 12 okay. today? I, thought I, I couldn't find the uh, email, but... Uh... Okay, I think it's, I, I, the verse 11 does sound familiar, like we talked about it last time. We did. I, I believe that was last time. And then verse 12 today, and I'll read it from the uh, Wayne Dyer, Change Your Thoughts. By the way, if any of the books that we're using, plus since I, your book, I have posted at buddyc.org. I have all these. Oh, books. good. So anyone that wants Thank to buy any of the books, including yours, Thank you. we have their um we have there for you um i think ebook and kindle are now available too oh great on the, on the original frontier great and i know you're working on an audible too right or fixing to start on an audible maybe i've got yeah strangely enough the guy has the studios just a few blocks from here some drunk or somebody drove across the street and ran right up his parking pad into his building so they, oh, no. they had they had to clean up some mess in the front end of the building <laughs> but okay. it, the studio is upstairs, and uh, yeah, I'm going to start recording over there. Uh, Who's darn drunk, say? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> he just said some guy ran into our front window, ran through the window. You know, <laughs> happens all the time in Atlanta. <laughs> well, I uh, submitted the audio for the Audible a few days ago and they're they're they don't have it approved as of now but i'll hopefully that'll be up for for the book yeah I've but you've, on. you've got your own studio you know i do i've got a, a and plus it's a lot shorter book too it, for what it would take you a chapter to do i can do my whole book so yeah <laughs> i i kind of uh, uh scored a new record this morning i got up about four I didn't have to go see Randy. Randy's our priest in residence, and uh, he couldn't meet this morning because he's he's being interviewed by IBM. He thinks he's going to get a really big job. He's wow. going to retire in a couple of years, so he was kind of hated the job he's at. He's really good at it, but uh, then he got this opportunity. So this morning, I, I recorded four podcasts in a row. It's a quartet wow. on Kazan Zenji's uh introduction or instruction for pure meditation he called it he was a couple of generations after dogen he spread dogen zen he's called the mother of zen soto zen in japan whereas mm -hmm. dogen is called the father of soto zen oh. in japan 
So that was a big accomplishment for me to be able to do four in a row. It was like two and a half hours of recording. Wow. You know how that goes because you can't, you, you know, you end up, if you get an hour's worth of recording, it's going to take you two or three hours to get an hour. Mm-hmm. Oh, know. yeah. Also, your um, your suggestion on the, the tea to use to keep your throat in good shape. Yeah, the throat coat. Throat coat. That's very good. I'd suggest for anyone yeah. doing much recording to use that. I started using that yeah. very well. It's got uh, a lot. I think it's glycerin that coats your, uh, they think coats the rock and roll singers use it. It, it, it helped me a lot. And they still and they still sound horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad it worked. It, it really helps, I think. Yeah, Craig. Craig says he uses whiskey to help him when he wants to sing. I hope that's he has. Southern, <laughs> yeah, that's why they call it Southern Comfort. Yeah. <laughs> Except he's in Scotland, though. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you you have the good stuff. <laughs> Yeah, we might have to talk about that after the after the meeting today, Craig. So <laughs> the, the 12th verse. Oh, that's right. This is recovery. This is so, right. <laughs> supposed to be. <laughs> what, what kind of recovery and from what? Yes. <laughs> well, Craig's an exception for us and say we have to uh, we have we're still working with Craig. So um, five colors blind the eye, five tones deafen the ear. Five flavors dull the taste. The chase and the hunt crave people's mind, craze people's minds. Wasting energy to obtain rare objects only impedes one's growth. The master observes the world but trusts his inner vision. He allows things to come and go. He prefers what is within to what is without. So I, while you were reading that, this is a trick we often do uh, when we're reading Zen text. We ask the audience to read the one in front, and we've done this on, on this uh, call, read the one in front of your face while I read aloud this other translation, right? And so as you do that, your eyes are tracking this one and hearing the differences. And so you can sort of read between the lines and you can say, oh, oh if there's something here that confuses you, by hearing the other one at the same time, it's sort of, oh, that's what they're getting at. I can see, you know, okay. and in some cases we have like seven translations. Uh, Frederick Lecout, who is a, is a guy from France, he's now moved back to France, but he was posting those, um, oh shoot, it's on academia, academia something.org. If you go to academia.org and look for Frederick Lecout, L-E-C-U-T, you'll find different translations that he's posted there of different things. And he, we had one of uh, one of Dogen's tracks, which are notoriously gnarly, right? And so, um, he, you know, you read across and you can read six different, trans, six or seven translations by different people as to how they translated the first paragraph or the first stanza. And he had one column in French. So, you know, hmm. you read the French. Then you read the next one, the next one, so you can kind of compare. But then if you read vertically, you read through the whole, you know, through one translator's version of the whole thing. So that's, we find that to be very useful because I'm not going to go back and learn this, these ancient Chinese, <laughs> you know, no. Japanese languages. Uh, I don't have time for that. So here, uh, the difference I heard in the beginning is says this 
translation. Um, and by the way, did you send me a copy, this your copy of this book, Betty? No, sir, I bought you a copy. I have okay, mine. Whoever, whoever had it before put pencil notes, like on verse 11 says, note, see page one and seven or something. <laughs> Yeah, I, I notated it, sent it to you after I noted it for you. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> so the difference I heard here in the, just the first three lines. Yes. This is five, five colors blind the eye, five tones, deaf in the ear, five flavors dull the palate. You said, yours said taste. You know? Yes. But here, the, the main difference, and I think it's substantive, is the five colors blind the eye. The, the, the five tones, deaf in the ear, the five flavors, dull the palate. So there's this verse in um, one of the Chinese poems where it says, uh, like the taste of the five flavored herb, like the five prong vajra. The vajra was a, once a weapon and has prongs coming out both sides that look like flames. You might've seen that. And um, it's used as a symbol of the lightning bolt or a dragon power, you know, uh, power. Where they say the five colors or the five tones or the five flavors, you can be pretty sure those were memes in Chinese uh, thinking, you know, philosophy or whatever. The five flavors, they're actually six. They've, add, they've added, they, in um, Japan, they add, what's it called? Savory. Savory is also considered a flavor. And they, they like monosodium glutamate, you know, I call it, uh, mm -hmm. can't remember what it's called now, uh, that they put on um, dishes to make them more savory. So what's the significance of five? Is five just complete? I don't know, you know, with five digits and they had five branches of Chinese Zen after Huinang that branched out into five. And that was a prophecy actually on the South Korean group that I meet with, um, in fact, this Sunday morning, or this Saturday morning at 7 a.m. my time, Eastern time, um, they're wanting us to speak about the role of prophecy in Christianity, Islam, Buddhism. And um, as you know, uh, those of you familiar with Christianity or Islam or both, their prophecies are very big scale, you know, end of times and second coming and all those kind of things. We, we had the prophecies of Maitreya, Buddha of the future, kind of similar in a way, but it, there's an ongoingness in Buddhism that isn't like Christianity where everything has to come to a crashing catastrophic end, which may be happening now from what we can tell out there, right? The apocalyptic kind of idea that's you don't find that in buddhism so much as kind of a gradual decline and then a, a period of uh sort of nothing happening in buddhism and then the new buddha arises maitreya appears out of the out of the decline and um the five i think may have all the numbers in india and uh, and later in China, I think they were all considered like symbolic and sacred, the number itself. So you hear these phrases, not two and not three, straight ahead runs the way. I don't think those are mathematical statements. They are more like symbolic. Mm -hmm. So I think the five, you know, 
is that kind of thing. Then they have the logical tetralemma, the four proposition. It is, it is not, it both is and is not, it neither is nor is not. You know, that comes from India. Very numerically oriented. The Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the six of that, the five of those, the three of those. And I think there were mnemonics to help us remember. Okay. And so when they say the five, the five, five, and five, it looks like somebody had a model of our experience. Uh, there are essentially five colors. Now we say there are 12, you know, the color wheel spectrum, five tones. So very consistent, five of this, five of that sense, five of that sense, right? Seeing, hearing, tasting here. So I think it's probably more symbolic than literally yeah. numerical. Hey, hey, Sensei, what I asked folks to do today was to unmute and, and to, ra to raise their hand yeah. when they had a question for you so we wouldn't sure. interrupt you. So, uh, Well, if you, if you will facilitate that, that will help me so I don't have to. Sure. Uh, Craig's Call got a people. question for you. Okay. When we first looked at this verse a while ago, I thought the, the five was to do with the primary of each sense. So you get the five primary tastes. The, the, was it the sweet, yeah. sour, salty, bitter? And is it umami? umami? Yeah. And then you have the, the five primary colors. So do you think it could just be based on um, the basics of... I think they'd be red, yellow, blue, black, and white. Yeah. Probably, you know. We still use red, yellow, blue as primaries. But in design, I come from a design background, as you know, training and education. Uh, the colors are sorted into uh, light and pigment. Mm -hmm. So pigment would be essentially reflected color. And um, the reverse, the inverse is kind of interesting because black and white play symbolic roles in the West and the East. And they're reversed. White here is the color of life where black is the color of death. In the East, my understanding primarily, black is the color of life. And this is why the priests wear the black robes. It's like the fertile ground kind of thing. And white is the color of death. So in funeral ceremonies, often it'd be white, uh, wearing white. So in light, uh, it's, it's also in verse that all the color waves, uh, um, I don't know what they're called in, in light uh, diagnosis, but what would be equivalent to red, yellow, blue, all of those combined together make white. In pigment, if you combine all the pigments, they make black or they make at least a very dark gray. So it's sort of like in physical pigment is the reverse of light waves. And color is very important. Um, it's, it's considered and, you know, I would ask the question, the fourth major sense is body tactile sensation. So what would the five be in tactile sensation? They probably had five, you know, friction, pressure, you know, itch, <laughs> maybe burn, you know. Cold and hot. Cold and hot. Uh -huh. So... Um, but the, the main point of these three sentences um, has to do with looking at the six senses, including thinking as the sixth, as what they call the thieves, the six thieves. Um, 
because we are seduced and distracted by and taken by the senses, they deprive us of our birthright. So we're forever chasing after sensual pleasure and some, you know, movies or dazzling fireworks displays, uh, beautiful music, uh, getting a massage or, you know, sens sensual. And there's nothing wrong with that. Essentially, just in terms of Zen, they are considered to be sort of deflecting you from what you could be paying attention to. And so when we sit still, we also fix the gaze. We, we don't move our, our eyes around and look at things. We just look at looking, look at seeing, you might say. We listen to hearing and we uh, feel sensation. So they're sort of abstracted into large realms. They're called datus, D-H-A-T-U. It means realm or world. And each of those realms has an organ, the eye, for instance, the ear, etc. Each has an object, light, color, sound, et cetera, different object. And each has a field in which it happens. And they use another word for field. I can't remember what it is. but So seeing obviously happens on the level of light waves. So that's, you know, we're capturing light literally with our retinas and our, you know, optic uh, binocular vision and so forth. We capture the waves in the air, compressed waves in water, air that affect our eardrums, and we capture sound, which is a much lower frequency. It's all electromagnetic spectrum to us. They didn't have that in those days. But they had this intuitive sense of it, right? And then the flavors, when you get into the flavors and smells, uh, they adapt very quickly, sitting still enough, and you're not drinking anything, you're not eating anything. You, incense was used, I think, to establish a kind of a benchmark, uh, odor, fragrance. Then the sitting space, when you go to these big temples in Japan, they used a lot of, I think it's called cypress, Japanese cypress, to build those things. And it's very, it's aromatic. You can smell, the, smell it everywhere you go, kind of in the temple. So uh, the main point I think they're making here that it blinds the eye, deafens the ear, and dulls the palate. And you go, you, you could go into uh, talking about body sensation and you know smell and taste and so forth. As thinking dulls the mind, you know thinking distracts you from a more intuitive, deeper wisdom grasp of reality. You're thinking up here on the surface, right? And so the metaphors are used like the ocean on the surface of the ocean it could be a, a cyclone going on. It could just be chaos. But down at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, it's almost solid because of the pressure, right? So that's the way the deep mind, Buddha mind, underneath all of the activity on the surface here is this deep, deep mind like the bottom of the ocean. So then all this racing, hunting, galloping about, and so forth, the way we pursue after these sensory pleasures. And, and then he talks about rare objects like, you know, collecting art and so forth, or precious jewel to Buddhism. They're beautiful, these uh, gems of the world, like the big blue diamond that Elizabeth Taylor owned, you know. <laughs> but they're just a rock. I mean, it's a, it's a piece of stone, you know, it's a... Um, 
So the conclusion is um, the sage, those of us who practice this way, turn our attention to something else. And the inner and outer is often used for this. But as Hakuin famously said, there is no inner and outer. So on a kind of an abstract or concrete level, we know what we mean by saying we're going inward in our meditation and away from outer entanglements, right? We understand that psychologically. But what we find is it's kind of like a torus or a loop. You go all the way in, you come out the other side. So you're back here. And so there is no inside outside. It's like, a, what's that? Klein bottle, you know, where, mm-hmm. like a Mobius strip where it seems to have two sides, but it's only one. Holding on to what is deep and not what lies on the surface. So all those metaphors apply. The waves of the ocean, and then there's the ocean itself, and so on. Mm. So anyway, don't don't mean to babble on here. Yeah. Yeah. How about the? uh, Did you have something else, Chris? Well, I was just curious about the in this translation you read, buddy. The uh, the word without uh, struck me a lot because it has a double meaning. to me, it means with outside of oneself, right? And then Without. also not to ha- not to have. Yeah, that's um, a very important distinction. They prefers what is within to what is without. Like, and uh, yep. the, the other translation was he holds on to what is deep and not what lies on the surface. And so that's yeah. Yeah, the other translations tend to make that more clear. Uh, but the, but the yours makes it still somewhat of a puzzle, yeah. you know, the dire translation. Yeah. And he also uh, makes the last line very generic. It's not a, what is deep and not what lies on the surface. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm back on the 11th one. I'm sorry. Yeah. Prefers what is within to what is without. So it prefers to what... Um, Say it again. So he, he is he talking about just he he prefers what um, is within himself, the, the inner yeah. seeking inwardly rather than yeah. the outward things to yeah. give. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the that's I think that's the clear meaning. And we have to be somewhat forgiving where I could pick nits with this and quibble. Um, but it's the, more the fault of the language mm-hmm. than the fault of what it's trying to say, and who knows what the Chinese uh, originally was. So the one I said about um, outer and inner, as uh, Hakuin was saying, that there's no really no such division, and that's why the sense of hearing is considered critical. Because it's of, of the senses, hearing is the one that w- where we can't find a boundary. We, you can't separate outside sound from inside sound. When you sit very still in a very quiet place, you start hearing a whole lot more sound. You start hearing sounds in the brain, the blood rushing on the heartbeat, everything that your brain doesn't need to know on a continuous basis, so it's just shut off. This is what the neuroscientists tell us. Um, but I would quibble... And I'm only going to do this for the sake of illustrating a couple of other teachings of Buddhism is not really contradicting what is said here. Uh, 
trusts his inner vision. He allows things to come and go. And that one is a good one, I think, that uh, we, uh, one description is um, we hold to, nothing clings to us and we hold to nothing. Um, there's a line in the Diamond Cutter Sutra, which a line which Hui Nang, sixth patriarch in China, who was illiterate, uneducated, untrained, heard, and it triggered an, an enlightenment, waking experience in him. It said something to the effect of the true mind being that which uh, clings to nothing and sticks nowhere. So our true mind is very dynamic, according to Buddhism. Our intelligence, our awareness, Buddha said the mind imposes a false stillness on reality for survival reasons, amongst other things. But we have to keep it still so that we don't go crazy. You know, it's like the oceanic flow of awareness of the infant in the crib or like a, psych, a, a LSD trip. You know, uh, you don't want to be driving on an expressway, right? <laughs> so it's like that. The mind has to shut things down to a dull roar. So allowing things to come and go means you at least don't start picking preferences. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. But our mind naturally vacillates. And so we're faced with this contradiction that sometimes I'm an angel, sometimes I'm a devil, sometimes I'm peaceful and serene, sometimes I'm crazy and anxious. All of those who've gone through addiction and recovery know this vacillation back and forth between the craving for the, for the uh, substance and, you know, to have to get that uh, experience again. So vacillation is the way the mind works. And my perspective on it is you just have to get used to the vacillation. And you have to give up a preference for being calm and serene you have to accept the chaos and anxiety as the necessary complement to the serenity. And then that vacillation gets closer and closer. So it's not as far apart. The good person, the bad person are not so far apart anymore. And it gets at, through your practice, it gets closer and closer until you, you think of it as having the same moment of the pendulum, but it's going closer and closer. So the frequency is going higher and higher. So your practice is getting more and more intense. And uh, in a sense, I think you start getting high on the, on the intensity. Um, sometimes I recommend um, people come in and they say to Dokasan, a private interview, I need to do more Zazen. And I, I know I need to do more Zazen. And I say, well, when can you do more Zazen? You know, you can't do it in the past. You can't go back and do it. And you can plan to do it in the future, but you can't really do Zazen in the future. So when can you do more Zazen? The only time you could do more Zazen is now. And if you're not doing Zazen now, then you have to go sit in Zazen. And then that's the way you can do more Zazen when you're doing Zazen. That's the only possibility. And so I liken it to turning up the intensity knob. When you're doing Zazen, just turn up the knob as far as you can get it to go. And uh, that's the only way you can do more. You can only do it qualitatively. You can't do it quantitatively. You can plan, you know, say I'll sit an hour instead of a half hour. 
but that means you may waste a, an hour instead of wasting a half hour. Since so, can, uh, uh, Kate's got a question for you, I think. Good, good. I didn't mean to interrupt you, sir. Go ahead, Kate. Okay, so I'm trying to think. All the stuff you just said kind of affects my question that I had earlier. So I'm trying to think how to how to freeze it. Um, so I just moved into a new house and I'm happy about that because it has like a place in the back where I can sit and feel very relaxed because there's a lot of nature. So I was kind of thinking about how you said like about the jewel and how you know I like I like sitting in the back because I'm more relaxed and looking at nature so is that not bad but is that something that I shouldn't be like aiming for because does that does, does my confusion make sense no it does this is a known issue <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah okamura roshi was here one time he was uh he's japanese of course and he's only about eight years younger than i but he's fully recognized in japan he did my final transmission ceremonies and things although matsuoka roshi had already done them but matsuoka roshi did them on a, like a really informal basis so he was doing it so that my credentials could not be questioned uh by anybody in the larger zen community and uh, I mentioned to him, I said, sometimes we sit out back on the decks, you know, sit out there like the, like they did in the forest in India, you know. And he said, yeah, but that's not Sazen. <laughs> I was thinking, wait a minute, Buddha sat in the woods, you know, <laughs> under a tree. I mean, so the secret to that is in one of the long poems where Dogen says, Grass, uh, grass trees and lands which are embraced by this teaching together radiate a great light and endlessly expound the endless profound dharma that kind of thing very very effusive you know then he goes on to say grass trees and walls walls bring forth the teaching for all beings common people as well as sages and then they in a turn in accord uh, carry this on for the sake of grass trees and walls, Expend, extend the Dharma for the sake of grass trees and walls. So walls are man-made constructions. They're the walls of the Zendo. And you and I, as I write in the Kazan thing where he's saying, don't get too attached to all these formalities, just sit kind of thing. Um, I make the point that, yes, you can sit outside, you can sit in nature and we do that. And I did notice that it's really loud and noisy and busy, especially in a city like Atlanta, airplanes flying over, mosquitoes and bees, and the, the wind is blowing, the grass is swaying, and it's just like compared to sitting inside the Zendo facing a blank wall. It's very much muted. It felt as, as uh, you know, Buddy, uh, Buddy puts foam blocks all over his walls to mute it even more in order to do recording. So this is kind of a simple principle, I think. I wouldn't say it's not Zazen when you sit outdoors. Okamura Roshi goes there. I, I wouldn't go there. 
I would say that's also Zazen, but it's, it's more distracting. And my teacher said, if you sit Zazen and don't give up and keep sitting, keep sitting, keep sitting, eventually you will be able to sit through a thunderstorm. And he told a story of a San Francisco earthquake where a Japanese guy, true story, uh, was in a hotel with a bunch of other people. They were on one of the upper floors and the whole building starts swaying with the earthquake. Everybody's screaming and running for the doors. And this guy turned it around to see how, what his, his Japanese friend was getting out. And he was sitting on the couch and so I was in. <laughs> Riding the wave, right? So the premise is that you can get to the point where nothing will bother you. You can, you can recall the, the focus and serenity, et cetera, of Zazen in a boardroom or when you're under examination, or when you're in a difficult situation or relationship. So, uh, then, you don't need, then you don't need the, the whatever object was helping you become calm. You don't need an elaborate setup. You can do it anywhere. And I think I recommend in my book, I recommend, for instance, when you go on Sashin, a long retreat, that we ask everybody to pick a spot. And stay in that spot for the whole sessions, five, seven day, whatever it happens to be. And you're sitting facing the same blank wall. You're not moving from this blank wall to that one. We even put markers like our beads or something on the cushion so nobody takes our seat. But then in the same breath, in the next paragraph, I talk about the value of training under different circumstances. Like uh, the great world-class elite athletes, they... Uh, train so that they can compete in a very loud stadium. They can continue running through rain, et cetera. You know, the, uh, you know, the, uh, I can't remember what they call them, but where you go through seven or eight events, different types of things. So both sides of the training are valuable and neither, uh, and again, the, the idea of preference, Zazen or Zen, uh, privileges or preferences, the walls, sitting facing a blank wall for the simple reason that it puts you against the mirror, you know, and you, you're not going to be distracted by the butterfly flying by. Think, oh, how wonderful I'm doing Zazen and a butterfly, <laughs> you know, it's more like, no, sit, look in the mirror here. <laughs> that makes sense. So it's not an obiter dictum. It's uh, and you will develop a preference, and that's what you have to watch. Sit in. You can sit in your basement. You don't have to go to a lovely retreat in the mountains. I haven't. That's one thing I haven't understood. Well, we we learn in in uh, zazen that we're to well we learn when we're studying that it's about the black wall, but yet we want to do these things in all these wonderful places i'm like yep okay yep. <laughs> looks like we'd well, be better just you know going to the base well, again you develop a preference but zen has no preference and so it recognizes that there's value in going on retreat up in the mountains we have a mountain center up in hayesville north carolina there's value in getting that distance from your usual environment and we know this in recovery as well. If you change one or two things, it, it helps, you know, because everything is connected and, and reinforces our habits. 
So uh, the value of going on retreat and getting some distance, we drive two and a half hours up to the farm, uh, has this psychological thing of leaving all the baggage behind, right? And so while I'm here, this is all I'm doing. And it sort of opens my window of opportunity. I'm not worried about what I might do this afternoon. I'm, this is what I'm gonna be doing this afternoon and tomorrow morning and tomorrow afternoon, et cetera. So just that uh, is understood to be a um, very supportive to your practice. But at the same time, being able to sit in your basement or in your own backyard or in a sense, while you're on the expressway, you know, is also valuable. Yeah. Uh, Dennis, do you have a question? Yes, yes, I do, uh, Sensei. What I'm understanding here is it also because uh, when you're sitting in front of a blank wall and you, that means that you do not get seduced by your five senses. Not so as it's much. Easier. It's, it's not as much because that you're getting seduced by yeah. them. Okay. So it's easy to yeah. practice us in, in, in front of a black wall. Yeah. And, and, a and wall there's, there's all, lots and lots of practical down to earth advice and recommendations in Hakuin, 18th century, Kazan and so forth, where they talk about don't sit after eating a big meal. You know, I mean, we know the blood rushes to the stomach and it's going to be going to affect the uh, nature of your experience if you're sitting. Uh, don't sit where there are uh, drafty winds, you know, coming through. Uh, don't sit where it's too dark or too light, too bright, etc. Just moderate, you know, tune, tune the environment to be moderate. But what happens is uh, the Harmony of Sameness and Difference, famous poem, by... Um, you could say artificially, stressing sameness, the differences come out. On the other hand, if you go practice down by the creek and another time you sit in your basement and another, Matsuoka Roshi claimed going back to California one year from a trip here, he took the Greyhound bus and he sat in the middle of the bench seat on, at the back wall and he sat in meditation the whole way in Zazen. So sitting, training in different environments, the difference brings out the sameness. So when we sit in Zazen, we think, well, it's the same as it was last time. It's not possible. You know, even one moment sitting in Zazen cannot possibly be the same as the moment before. So you get down to this granular sort of level of perception where each breath smells a little differently. Each breath is a little different from the one before, and so on. It's like Alice in Wonderland, kind of the way I think of it. It's like going through the looking glass, down the rabbit hole, and everything starts to change. <laughs> Sensei, the question here, there's one, one thing. I, I want your, your uh, comment on this. The, uh, the star translation says uh, the sage is led by his inner truth. Um, right. Wayne Dyer says, trust his inner vision. Right. What, how do you see that? Well, the theory, I like, uh, there's a lot of words like this. These are translators' choices. And what the original Sino-Japanese, Chinese, in this case, it would be Chinese, said was, prob was a uh, kanji 
that represented vision, also represented truth, probably had 16 different other connotations. Because a kanji is almost like a whole sentence. It's like all of these, they call them the radicals and things, all the little parts and pieces of it are actually separate words. And that language begins with very simple strokes, one or two strokes, and then it adds strokes, and then it starts combining them. And you, you, know, you end up with this thing that has come to represent something like shunyata, emptiness. But it has all of these potential meanings. And in English, we only have the choice of one word. And actually, each of our one single words in English has many connotations, but not nearly as much, I think, as the Chinese. And I'm not a scholar or a translator. Sure. So he had to make a choice. Uh, one used vision, one used truth. But those, those two translations are not separate in the original Chinese. So it's both. Both things can be true at the same time. And so what it implies is the way you experience the truth of Buddhism or Zen is through experience, which we in the art field, the creative field, like to speak of as vision. If you think of the word vision, look at all the meanings it has. A person who is a great genius, a leader, and so forth is called a visionary. So many of the words in our language relate to vision as this kind of sacred thing. And as I see what you mean. It doesn't mean literally seeing visually, but it means I, I get the image, I, I grasp that. Mm -hmm. So it goes to the nature of mind that mind does not rely on words. Consciousness does not rely on language. And so what you might call your inner truth is also your inner vision. Thank you, thank you. Um, any other questions for Sensei? So if not, just that last line, he prefers what is within to what is without. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. Choosing the word prefers here, the other one says he holds to what is deep. So again, that, that kanji or that verb, uh, not, not called kanjis, I think kanjis are nouns, means prefer as well as hold to and probably 15 other possibilities. Um, so here, this is not contradicting the, the idea that the great way allows no preferences. If you prefer what is within to what is without, it just simply means that you're turning your attention away from all of those distractions and you're turning them to pay attention to this so-called great matter, capital G, capital M, right? And uh, it's not a preference in the ordinary sense. Uh, of a pejorative, saying preference would be a pejorative, would be dualistic. It's not like that. And the way that I learn to prefer to look within is by sitting. Yeah, I think it develop. I think we develop a talent, or we develop a um, skill. We in Zen, we don't think we transmit Zen. We, it's like saying I taught somebody music. No, you didn't. Mm -hmm. You can teach them how to play the piano. You can teach them how to read music and so forth, but you can't teach music. It's like saying I taught somebody art. You can't teach art. So Zen is like that. The only thing we really teach or transmit is the method. And fortunately we have a method, uh, Zazen. And you can practice that like practicing the piano through sheer repetition, you get better. And eventually, um, 
what starts out as pretty clunky, not unmusical stuff. There's a turning point at which it, it becomes true music. I think we talked about Van Cliburn. He said, if I don't practice for a day, I begin to notice. He said, if I don't practice for two days, my audience begins to notice. So, yeah. So, uh, music, art, Zen, even science, highest levels of science, uh, all different languages. Mathematics is a language, imagery is a language, sound is a language. They all precede verbal language. When you were three years old, two years old, you didn't have much language and verbal language, native tongue. But you had the language of vision, the language of hearing, and the language of feeling. You're fully conscious. And your mind was running like a, you know, thousand miles a minute, absorbing all of that. But it was not in the level of words. So that's why we say Zen, Zen the great way is beyond language for in it there is no yesterday no tomorrow no today and those three words are very critical to language imagine what it was like when uh early times and all of a sudden it's dark <laughs> yeah all of a sudden it's light what the hell is this <laughs> what's that you know <laughs> and then you want to talk to somebody about something that what we we casually would say happened yesterday right and they don't even have the word yesterday. <laughs> they don't even have the word today. You know? The concept of tomorrow hasn't happened yet either. Or night versus day. You know, It just turns dark and then it turns light. That's all we know. So <clears throat> you had to name it. In design, we call it name that concept. You come up with a new, new concept, you have to name it. So people say, oh, let me look at that. You know? Thank you, sir. Anyone else before we close? Well, if anybody oh, wants to follow up in person, Buddy will share my email with you. He's got it. Yes, I will. So if that's it, then, guys, thank you for the conversation today. Thank you, Sensei. Y'all have a great week. Thank you. My pleasure. You're my favorite group. I tell every group that. <laughs> thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.